Hi there, and welcome to Social Capital Matters. I'm your host, Kylie Taylor. On this show, we take a deep dive into the ideas around social capital by talking to business and industry leaders about how they use it to inspire their stakeholders and build a framework for long-term success. Hi, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of Social Capital Matters. We have a great show for you this week, but first, I'm joined by my producer, Greg, in Bangkok. Greg, how are you doing today? Hi, Kylie. Things here are going well. Um, Our guest today is actually in the same time zone as me, which is rare. Makes our scheduling a little bit easier for this episode. So with that out of the way, can you introduce them and let's get underway? I sure will. Thanks, Greg. Today, we are talking with Cindy Serena Bishop, a Thai-American television host, actor, author, and former winner of Miss Thailand World. Today, she's most well-known for her advocacy of gender and diversity issues as a goodwill ambassador for UN Women and founder of the Don't Tell Me How to Dress social movement. So let's get Serena on the phone and talk to her now. Cindy, why don't you introduce yourself and and tell us a bit more about yourself? Well, I think you've done a pretty good job. (laughs) Um, yes, thank you. I am I am a Thai American, like you said, uh, actor, host, model. I've been in the entertainment industry in the region for, oh, let's say, 30 plus years now. Um, but most recently, I've uh, started using, I guess, my platform um, in, in other areas, namely in advocacy against gender-based violence and also um, just overall gender equality. Um, And so that's kind of taken me into different avenues. Um, You did mention the Don't Tell Me How to Dress movement. That was something I started quite suddenly out of the blue in 2018, um, which has then sparked many, many other things. Yeah. Well, well, let's talk about that because certainly that's what got my attention. Your work on gender and diversity issues has got worldwide attention, um, including being selected as one of BBC's 100 Most Influential Women in 2020. Um, I've, I've read previous interviews with you and you discussed how being crowned as Miss Thailand World in 96 gave you a platform to get gender issues seen and heard. Let's talk about then what sparked this um, whole movement of yourself into being a gender and diversity advocate. How did you actually get started? And I'm sure our listeners would love to hear about what Don't Tell Me How to Dress was all about. Thank you. Yes, it was quite an honor to be on that list, Um, but I don't think my advocacy journey started when I won the pageant. I was 17 at the time, fresh out of high school, really just kind of doing it to see <laughs> to see how far I would get. I did not think I would be winning the crown because if anyone's seen a picture of me, you would not think that I was Thai. I look very um, mixed, mostly more Caucasian than I do, but I was born and raised in this country. So I think on that stage, my whole aim was, okay, what is identity and trying to prove myself worthy of the title. Um, It wasn't until, like I said, 2018, that the Don't Tell Me How to Dress movement came about. Um, And that was quite literally just a knee-jerk reaction I had one morning um, reading a newspaper article in the Bangkok Post. Um, It was leading up to the Thai 
Thai New Year. It's Songkran, which where everybody has massive water fight, fights mm. around the country. You know, it's like a big party. It's a lot of fun. It is a lot of fun. Um, unfortunately, it is also a breeding ground um, for a lot of un. Uh, safe behavior, a mm. lot of violence, specifically towards women, a lot of sexual harassment. And so every year there's kind of a big push by the government to, okay, let's stay safe. Let's keep it clean. Um, and so it, they had good intentions. However, the article headline was don't dress sexy. Department tells women. It was basically one of their main um, ways to reduce sexual assault and harassment was to tell women not to wear spaghetti straps. And uh, I just, because I was assaulted during Songkran, when I was 17, right after I won the pageant, actually, um, in broad daylight, even though I was wearing very, you know, modest clothing, particularly because I knew, you know, of the kind of situation, mm. and, you know, potential dangers, I, I, I just, I couldn't. I couldn't just stay silent. So I picked up my phone and I recorded a rant on social media, which I never do. Like I've, I've, I've been in the industry for a long time. Nothing's ever kind of triggered me that much to actually come out and speak out. Um, in this case, it was directly to uh, government officials like, really, is this the only thing you can think of? You know, how about warning would be perpetrators? How about highlighting where the call centers or help centers or, or hotlines yeah. if you are in a uh, position where you find yourself threatened. Um, you're just telling us how to dress. And so I slapped on the hashtag, don't tell me how to dress. And then another one, tell men to respect kind of just, you know, and I threw my phone in my bag and went and did a fashion show. <laughs> um, and then I came back about an hour later and it had, it was blowing up with many, many women all over Thailand sharing my frustration, sharing my anger, sharing their own stories of assault during this period as well. Um, saying that, you know, can we please stop blaming women? Can we stop telling us how to dress or not to go out at night or not to be alone? Like, can we change this narrative? And so that kind of sparked mm. my deep dive <laughs> after that into all things, um, you know, gender equality in terms of women empowerment, um, because I, 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 I realized that I had the attention, I had the platform, a lot of people spend a lot of money trying to get attention and not, and, and um, to deliver the message. So how was I going to use this opportunity? And so that's where I teamed up with UN Women. That's where I did a lot of research. I teamed up with local organizations to start and do a proper um, campaign around this issue. We'll get more into the content of what you're campaigning for in a moment. But one of the things I like about your story is how new media platforms give a voice to people who don't have a voice. And sure enough, you were famous. So you had the opportunity to have a voice, but still you didn't need to go and do an advertising campaign or sp spend millions. You literally, I love that story about you had a rant in your phone, put some hashtags on it and threw it into your handbag. And clearly it's a message that people wanted to hear and could relate to and connect to. And, and that's why it obviously um, sparked off this whole entire movement. Mm -hmm. um, 
it reminds me of a, another a campaign that I, I saw. Well, it wasn't a campaign, sorry. It was an exhibition. Um, hashtag, what were you wearing? And I don't know if you've seen that exhibition, but it it went to museums and galleries. And it was really very, very confronting because it was the um, outfits that people were wearing um, when they were sexually assaulted and someone had put together the um, exhibition and it sort of makes exactly the same point that you're making from a different perspective because it actually showed um, some of the people um, were wearing like tracksuits or nighties or, you know, there was nothing evocative or sexy in what they were wearing. And that was another example and another way of changing that narrative and um, always putting it back to it must be the woman's fault somehow. She must have done something to um, create this behaviour. And I love the fact that your hashtag was also about tell men how to behave. And and, sorry, now I feel like I'm having a big rant, but um, I have a 16-year-old son and I've seen some of the materials he comes home from school with now as as part of education programs about teaching boys about respectful relationships. And, you know, these things would not have happened without advocacy of people like yourself and others around the world that have really brought attention to that whole issue. So, um As a parent, I thank you for the work you're doing. But one of the things I wanted to talk about today is, and you yourself referenced the fact that you're Western and you're Asian and you're in Thailand and doing a lot of your work from Thailand and culturally it's it's a very different place. How was that when you first started um, advocating um, for these types of issues? Did you have to change your narrative or change the way you did things to make it work in a, in a Thai or an Asian context? I'll answer your question in a minute, but actually the What You Were Wearing exhibition, we did exactly the same thing. I'm not sure who did it first, oh, okay. <laughs> but we, we definitely, we brought clothing worn by survivors at the time of their assault, 15 to- total, um, and we put them in huge acrylic showcases and put them in the middle of a very prestigious shopping mall with the story and it ranged from university students outfits to um, t-shirt and shorts of a mother who was assaulted by her own son to turtleneck sweater and jeans of a woman who went to on a job interview to a toddler's two-year-old toddler's play suit uh, with the aim of not just having these conversations in closed groups of activists and people who are interested, but let's put it out in a mall and literally stop people in their tracks. And that was by far the most impactful, powerful thing um, to just see people who would never even thought of this, like, you know? Um, And so, so I'm glad that, that, and we did the same thing. We took the exhibition and put it in, we took it to Singapore, we took it to Philippines, and we we had a traveling ex- ex- exhibition all to um, different universities within Thailand. So, yeah, I think it's to your point of how do we get the message out? Um, we can't just keep talking about it amongst ourselves. We need to get, I'm, I'm all about trying to find a way to break through the kind of invisible uh, barriers and doors to the general public. And that's what we started with the Don't Tell Me How to Dress campaign. And you asked me about if I had to change how I created my messages or change how I communicated. Um, I wouldn't say change so much as just use both the Thai in me and the Western in me to its advantages. So 
I think that first kind of outburst of emotion was very Western in me in terms of just being just channeling my anger and speaking my mind. But I realized very quickly after that, that I don't think the kind of fiery, hot headed, you know, a protest that works quite well in the West will go over that well in Asia, especially not in Thailand. So very quickly, I had to then make sure that I followed up one with research data, with credible organizations such as UN Women, such as the Canadian government at the time, such as um, local NGOs who were doing amazing work in the space. So I made sure to make sure that my message was well backed with facts and figures. Um, And I did it in a very respectful kind of Thai way, (laughs) but still hard hitting. So I would go on interviews and I wouldn't kind of point everyone out, but I would just say to the general public, like, hey, we're better than this, aren't we? You know, really appeal to the group think of the culture that is here. Like generally in Asia, things tend to be adopted easier, perhaps, or change behavior if you get a group of people to to do it together. Right. So that was kind of my direction with the the, the movement. Um, I just kept things as positive as as possible when talking about such a subject. Um, I tried to. I ended up taking off the hashtag "Tell Men to Respect" because I realized that that was very. I mean, it wasn't wrong, but uh, I just said It was too confronting. Was it it too confronting? confronting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you even just take a look at like the Me Too. I think one of the Time magazine tweeted out at the time that Don't Tell Me How to Dress was Asia's answer to Me Too, which was interesting. I don't know if it was the answer. I don't know if we're there yet. Um, But to have it kind of on the same level was 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 yeah is interesting um me too hasn't really taken off here in the way that it has in the west because it's so much more difficult for an individual here to not just stand up to a powerful figure but just just to stand out anyway in the culture yeah Yeah. well that's a good segue to get into talking about workplaces of today and corporations of today we obviously spend a lot of our time working with uh, corporate organizations across the Asia Pacific and and ASEAN and particularly in Thailand so I understand some of those differences that you're talking about in workplaces today, there's still a vast difference between the way men and, and women are treated. There absolutely has been progress. I, I saw a recent, um, it was actually a US-based study, uh, and you'd expect more progress potentially in some parts of the US. I found this really interesting, and I'm sure you will too. It says that women are hired for what they have done, while men are hired for what they can become. And I thought that was really, um, really interesting. And it shows how uh, gender biases are so mm-hmm. uh, deeply ingrained. And I, uh, we all know what the glass ceiling is. I've also heard a lot of talk now about the broken rung, which means there's not even somewhere for her to put her foot on the ladder yep. to, to propel herself up the, the ladder. And, you know, the work that you've been doing is connected to all of this because it's what women experience in what they see in the shopping mall, what they experience at home or what they experience at school. It's all connected um, Mm -hmm. and leads to how men and women behave in the workplace. Um, What reading are you getting on, on the modern workplace? And obviously you're doing a lot of work in the entertainment industry. Do you see progress 
I definitely see an increase in interest and good intentions. Right. Um, there's a lot more like the buzzwords, DEI, diversity, inc- equity, inclusion, they're being highlighted a lot more. Yep. I've actually yep. done um, a, a bit of corporate training as well under my other project, which is Dragonfly 360, in which we've done some corporate training programs yep. about inclusive, um, unconscious bias yep. within organizations, um, gender sensitive leadership and also uh, safe and respectful workplaces. So yes, there is an interest, but I feel that a lot of companies, especially local, more local ones, don't know where to start. So the multinational companies within the region, they will have a global mandate. They will have, you know, policies, initiatives in place, you know, top down. So they probably are find it easier to kind of create this inclusive culture within their organization how that then relates to the outside country that they are is a different story yes but within local companies there is an interest but i think we we're at the starting point you know there's needs to be a lot more than just kind of the the tokenism uh, international women's day celebration in march or a lot of rainbows on your logo in june for pride month yeah it really needs to be something that top level management has kind of highlighted as a priority we're going to make our company more gender inclusive and then then it trickles down to actual policies right so what are you doing in terms of hiring practices what about pay pay gap what about um maternity leave or even just language used in meetings um the unconscious bias we all have it's part of human nature but making sure that you know there's a safe and respectful workplace for everybody all the way to like supply chains as well. How transparent are your supply chains within your, the company and industry? Is it coming from suppliers that are, are not (laughs) taking advantage or exploiting women and children? I mean, there's so, it's a huge area. Um, I think that local companies definitely need a roadmap and a clear direction. Um, Government, laws and policies can help that but maybe we can't just wait for the government as well we need to take our own initiatives in the work that you've been doing in the corporate space have you ever experienced a real pushback like people really not wanting to hear from you and and not taking on board the messages no um the, the, we're there because they've invited us to go and we're not like you know <laughs> catching them unawares or anything like that yeah it's because the management has um, said that, okay, this is an important issue. Mind you, it, it happens a lot during <laughs> Pride Month and right. um, Women's Day, but at least it's a start. At least it's a, and, and for me, my main area, and I think the one that we have to start with is our own personal biases. And that's why I do a lot of work within the education space, within trying to use my platforms, whether it be um, Instagram or more recently TikTok, because I want to make it relatable. I want these concepts to not be this thing, big thing, like, oh my gosh, violence against women and children. It's uh, hello. It's how you. How are we t- talking to each other? What's what are examples of um, safe and respectful relationships? Um, breaking it down, like making it very obvious and easy for people to understand that it really starts with us. Yeah, and and you referenced um, language and and the words that are used in a meeting, for example, that they could be a key part of it. And you know, it's interesting because um, we and we've all read stuff about you know women will be 
called bossy or pushy or aggressive if they're strong leaders in a meeting, whereas a man who behaves the same way might be considered a real leader or a strong performer. So it's some of those um, biases that are sort of quite built into our language that need to to change. Um, You've done a lot of work with with children and I want to hear more about that. I know you've got your Thai language book that you're getting into the hands of um, children in schools. Tell us a bit more about that because that's actually where the, the language is set from the beginning, if you like. Yes, um, just a little note on that. Can you can imagine in um, very patriarchal societies or countries that is in Asia, just the fact yeah. that a woman dares to speak up in opposition to, you know, God forbid, or, um, you know, just to say no or something in a meeting, that's already, it's double, it's double the amount of effort that it would take in a Western society. So it's just culturally, you know, we have a lot, working against us but i i do have hope i mean in thailand again just under in the business sector um i think we have above the world average of ceos um in women in leadership positions in the business sector which is great but you know go into political areas and it's we're nearly non-existent and so there's a lot of different areas where women need to be given the equal opportunity given the help the promotion, the education to be able to take leadership positions, which will probably help a lot of things. Uh, What you just said, that that very quick example that you just said makes it really practical and easy for people to understand that in an Asian context, in a business meeting, for an Asian woman to say no or or take an opposing position against a male authority figure is doubly as hard mm-hmm. as it is for me in a Western context. Mm-hmm. So she's taking twice the energy, twice the thinking, twice the risk, if you like, of t- to take that sort of position. And, and I mean, you see it even, even in the trainings that we do, um, just getting or even in a Thai uh, classroom, forget Thai classroom, even in an international school classroom, if the majority are uh, more uh, Thai, it, it takes, it's harder for that student to raise their hand and say something. And so that's kind of, you know, that, I mean, that's, there's the culture aspect of that. So let's talk about your book. Mm-hmm. I can see you holding your book there, but the people listening to our <laughs> podcast no, can't see your book, but I'm seeing a bright yellow book with lovely kids cartoons all over it. And unfortunately I can't read the title because <laughs> I can't read Thai, but tell me all about it. So this is, um, a result of the Don't Tell Me How to Dress campaign. After doing a lot of work in that area, I realized it really does come down to education. What are we teaching our boys that they grow up to think that it's okay to do sexual harassment or anything with impunity? Um, Why are we teaching our girls only to protect themselves and not to speak up when they're uncomfortable or unsafe? So, I wanted to take it back to basics. I, I was, I'm a, I'm a mother of two. At the time I wrote this book, my son was five and my daughter was eight. So I knew firsthand the conversations I was having with them at home. And even with the work that I do, even with the amount of 
of knowledge, I mean, in this area that I was very, I was very fired up about this. I still had tricky conversations. I still had to choose my words carefully to make sure that they had one, a healthy um, understanding of what their bodies are, what parts, you know, there's no shame or, or embarrassment associated with certain parts, which uh, some, for some reason, there's a, a lot of that in, in Thai culture. Um, I think in Asian culture anyway, because of this lack of perhaps tools or ways to speak to their to kids in a way that will, will give them a, a healthy um, respect for their bodies and for other people's bodies. So that combined with a real lack of any kind of um, books on the market, like I would go out and try to find something in the Thai language about you know, body positivity, body autonomy, good touch, bad touch. There was nothing. All the books that I got had I had to go get from the U. Um, I had to buy from Australia or the U.S. And so I knew, okay, I need to write this book, and I need to write it in Thai with the Thai perspective. For example, um, you know, teaching kids <laughs> the correct name for their right. body parts, for their um, reproductive organs, teaching kids what good touch, bad touch is teaching kids specifically how to say no in an Asian context. Because right. again, we don't want them, you know, the, the the English books were like, here, just give them a high five. You know, auntie comes over, wants to give you a hug and a cheek. Uh, you can say no. <laughs> yes. That would not go over well here because it's very, very disrespectful. So trying to find a way to give children the right that they can say no to anything that makes them uncomfortable, but giving them the alternatives. So I put things like, we have a beautiful way of paying respect without any contact. And that is a why, which in many cultures in Asia, you can do that. Um, or different games where you play pinky instead of a high five, things like that. I try to add some right. cultural sensitive ways for kids to have a voice. Fantastic. And um, you told me when we were last chatting about doing a program um, with golf caddies. And I was really interested because this to me was applying this education to probably young women. I'm assuming they're kind of young women who are in the workforce and in potentially vulnerable kind of roles. So tell me about that piece of work. Yeah, so that was another um, example of the corporate training programs we've done through Dragonfly. Um, that was a big project. We had to go in, and it was about 250 golf caddies spread out up, up across four different golf courses. So it was three days total. It was a workshop that I've designed specifically to uh, just go through the basics. What is what is a safe, respectful workplace? You know, what is unex uh, what are the acceptable and unacceptable behaviors? Uh, what is sexual harassment? This is what it looks like. Da, 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 da. And then really engaging with them. So the stories they would come and talk to us about, I mean, the things that these girls have to go through. There's a tendency to think or equate in sometimes, unfortunately, because it does happen, golf caddies with sex workers. Oh, um, okay. Right. And so there's this, and it, it just in the service industry in general is a kind of blurred lines. And so, you know, this was a respectful golf course. They really wanted to send the message to their clients that this behavior is not acceptable. So we were really 
prepping and equipping the caddies with ways that they can decline advances right. in a way that wasn't just going to be, you know, you know, against the company policies and stuff like that. But some of these stories were heartbreaking. Um, if anything, we learned more from them than they did from us, or at least it was a very valuable sharing um, experience. And then I just left them with kind of the five Ds, you know, what to do in a situation, document, delegate, defer, distract, and things like that. And so, yeah, it's uh, it's just part of of some of the things that can be done in this space that can be very empowering to um, employees as well as the head of companies as well. Well, the fact that this golf club uh, called you in and wanted to set up this training, that's clearly um, a strong signal from them that they're very progressive, really, and they're wanting a different kind of workplace for their employees. Yep, for sure. Um, And that's something that we communicated back to the employees as well. Like, hey, you're in a you are in a company that really cares for your well-being um, and your safety. And I just think at the end of the day, it's win-win for everybody. Maybe not the clients who have a different idea, but that's part of educating society in general. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, Serena, when we're talking to people on the podcast, we always like at the end to just have a moment with any key tips or or guidance or inspiration that you would like to share with people. I think, you know, in corporations, there are probably many people who are in more local companies that don't have the resources that um, a large global corporate might have or the programs that come from head office. Do you have any particular sort of um, tips or starting points if if someone's really wanting to create a more gender equal workplace, how they can get going on that? Um, I think we have a wealth of information and guidelines at our fingertips. I think it takes a visionary leader within the uh, organization to just make it a mandate to make this a priority for the company. Um, I I understand that there are many cultural sensitivities in Asia, different challenges that we work against, but I think we should all be able to agree on just the bare basics that one, violence against women and girls is unacceptable in any situation, especially in the workplace. Let's just start there. Let's just make make workplaces um, safe and thriving for everybody. Um, your business will be better for it. Like like gender equality, diversity, it's not something that is a good thing to do or a nice thing to do. It's it's a smart thing to do for your business. Yeah. Happy employees make for better business, higher profits. Um, and perhaps the next step would just be, you know, women and girls should have equal opportunities for education, for economic um, opportunities. What are you doing within your company that can provide that, provide, you know, just promotion Um, or leadership opportunities. I think you will be surprised if you start embracing gender equality, diversity, the innovation, the creativity, the just overall um, enthusiasm (laughs) within. So yeah, give it a try. Thank you so much for your time today. And just so people are aware, if they want to look um, look at your programs or look at what you're doing. My website is cindysirinya.co.th um, and then there's dragonfly360.co as well. 
Great, great. Well, that is two places to go for more resources on gender equality in the workplace. And I'm sure if you go there, you can also find details of the Thai language book. And we actually didn't even get to talking about your period education packs that you're doing (laughs) for schools as well. But that's obviously um, another development in that whole series of education and empowerment for women. So thank you so much, Sharinya, for the time today. It's been great to talk to you and very um, inspirational. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I love these sorts of grassroots efforts that start with children and that are adapted to local language and culture. It's so critical to get that embedding of equality and inclusiveness into a culture. And I really like the way Serena is bringing this now into the workplace and to some of the most vulnerable women, such as golf caddies. That was a, a great um, example to learn from. Mm-hmm. And, and and her final point, I think, really sums it up. Your business will be better for gender equality. It gets creativity, it gets innovation, and it gets productivity. Yeah, indeed. There's only winners here. Um, you know, and what I really liked most about this was that it, it really shows the diverse and disparate areas that fall under the social capital umbrella, you know, yeah, it, covers, yeah. it's, it's covers such a vast range of ideas and topics that successful businesses need to be aware of. So that that's really what the first thing I like yeah. about this. And I also liked how Serenia called out tokenism, how a company, you know, they change their logo or they put up a flag to recognize a particular cause for a month. You know, that was a big deal 15 years ago, but things have changed now. And now we need to think beyond that. Absolutely. Absolutely. What steps can we take to make real change with measurable outcomes? How do you communicate those stories without being seen as just opportunistic or ticking a box on a form? So it's great that she's out there uh, pushing to make things better in this regard. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Thanks for listening, everyone. Make sure to check out the other episodes in our series. We've got great conversations with some of the brightest minds out there discussing the important issues in the world of social capital. See you next time. Social Capital Matters has been a production of Baldwin Boyle Group, hosted by Kylie Taylor and produced and edited by Greg Jorgensen. Find more episodes in our ongoing series on baldwinboyle.com slash podcasts, watch on YouTube, or listen wherever you find your podcasts.